This sermon was preached by Harry Fujiwara, Associate Pastor of North Shore Baptist Church in Bayside, Queens. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.ns-bc.org. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Good morning. Well, you asked for it. Please have Harry Fujiwara continue his series on Ephesians chapter 1. You asked for it. I'm just kidding. Today we're going to be looking at the first nine verses of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. Now you might remember the last time I preached, we looked at the first 14 verses, most of which constituted a doxology, a praise to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Well, today, most of what we're going to be looking at is a prayer to God, Paul praying to God for the Ephesian church. Before we get to the text, though, because of the relational, personal nature of prayer, I think it's helpful for us to know a little bit about the relationship between the person who is praying and the people he is praying for. Remember, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus, although it was probably meant to be passed around to other churches in the area, in the vicinity of Ephesus, primarily this is written to the church at Ephesus. And so it's important for us to understand the nature of Paul's relationship with the church at Ephesus. So going back to Acts chapter 18, the people of Ephesus first learned of and grew in the gospel when Paul, Aquila, and Priscilla went there on a missionary journey. Now, Paul leaves the Ephesians. He tells them he'll return if God wills. Aquila and Priscilla stay behind in Ephesus, faithfully preach the word there. Then on his third missionary journey, Paul stops by again, makes good on his promise, and returns to Ephesus. Now, he stays there for three full years to establish to the church there, to pastor the church there. For three years, he's deeply involved in the lives of the Christians there. He's teaching them daily. He's instructing them in the entire counsel of God. He's doing extraordinary miracles. People are getting healed by touching handkerchiefs that had merely touched him. Right? And the believers, the people of God, they respond in droves. They, they burn their books about the magic arts and they devote themselves wholeheartedly to God. Three years is a long, long time for the Apostle Paul, constantly on the move, constantly planting churches here and there. It's three years is a long time for him to be in one place. He really invested his life in those people. Then in Acts 20, we see Paul leaves Ephesus from Macedonia and Greece because the gospel had to go out to those places as well. And on his way back, he stops in at Miletus and he says farewell to the Ephesian elders. And you can picture the teary goodbye as Paul tells them, I'm never going to see you again. You're never going to see me again this side of eternity. And he entrusts, he commends their church to God and he instructs the elders to pay careful attention to the flock. Now, chronologically, this farewell is around 56 AD. So fast forward four to five years later to around 60 to 61 AD, and that's when Paul writes this letter, the book of Ephesians. So it's been four to five years since he's last seen these people with whom he spent three years of his life. He invested in these people, he shepherded these people, he loves these people, and now he's writing a letter to these same people. 
And so Paul starts off the letter with a greeting, and then right in the beginning, he rattles off this glorious, glorious praise of doxology to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he goes on, and he lists what those spiritual blessings are. Adoption, redemption, forgiveness of sins, spiritual understanding, being sealed with the Holy Spirit, so on and so forth. And we looked at how these blessings were in the heavenly places, how they were in Christ, how they were all initiated by God, how they were all past tense, and then how they encompassed every spiritual blessing. And we looked at how that praise was written, that the Ephesians might be encouraged, that they might find assurance in these blessings, and that might result in the praise of his glory. Which brings us now to the text for today. Turn your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. Ephesians 1, verses 15 to 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we submit ourselves to the authority of your word. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would be in this room, that your spirit would work in our hearts and our minds to understand and apply your word to our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's start off in verse 15. Paul begins by saying, I have heard of your faith in Jesus and your love for each other. And because of that faith, because of that love, he never stops thanking them, thanking God for them or praying for them. Now, when Paul says, I've heard of your faith, he's probably not referring to saving faith as in the fact that they've come to faith, that they've become Christians. Well, why? He's probably not referring to that because after all, he did spend three years there in Ephesus. And so he probably saw many of them get saved with his own eyes, and so it wouldn't make sense for him to say, well, I've heard of your faith. Well, I've seen most of you guys get saved. So faith here probably refers more to the practical outworking of faith, a fruit of the Spirit, a fruit of those who are saved. It's the same word in Greek that Paul uses when he lists off the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. In most of our Bibles, that word is translated faithfulness when he's listing the fruit of the Spirit, but it's the same exact word there. Faith here refers to faith manifested in deeds. Because faith without works is dead. One of the ways in which their faith was manifested, one of the ways in which word had spread about their faith, one of the ways in which faith works is in the love that we have for one another and for all the saints. And this is a point that's repeated over and over in the New Testament. You cannot claim to have saving faith if you do not love other Christians. 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death into life. That is, we know we have been saved Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. 
John says one of the clearest markers of saving faith is love for the brethren. Just to be clear, genuinely and sacrificially loving brothers and sisters in Christ does not make you saved, but it is a clear indicator or a marker of the fact that you have been saved. Let me make the same point by looking at our text from another angle. Look at the connection of this verse with the first 14 verses. Verse 15 starts with, in the ESV, for this reason. The New King James just has a therefore there. And so what Paul's saying in verses 15 and following is linked causally to the first 14 verses. He's thankful of their faith and love, verses 15 and 16, as outward reflections of the inward spiritual blessings that they've received, verses 3 to 14. Right, the faith and love serve as marks of their election, adoption, redemption, forgiveness of sins, spiritual understanding, and so on and so forth, because they can only come out of a person that has been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Now, conversely, if you do not have love for the saints, it's a good sign that you haven't been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That is, it's a good sign that you're not saved. If you don't love other Christians sacrificially, genuinely, you are still dead in your trespasses and sins. You are not a Christian. You can go to church, or you can sing the songs, you can read your Bible, you can serve in whatever ministry you want, but none of those things are as clear of a marker of salvation as is love for the brethren. And so for this reason, Paul says, because of your spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you. Now, this is not, if you read the epistles of Paul, an uncommon thing for Paul to say. You'll see him say similar things in other letters. If you read Philemon, uh, if, you leave, if you read Colossians, you'll see him say similar things. But you can imagine the heightened emotional intensity given the fact that Paul lived amongst these people for three years. Right? Paul knows these people personally. Paul personally taught many of these people. Paul shepherded the flock of God that was amongst him in Ephesus. It's like the difference between hearing about and being encouraged by reports of great faith of missionaries that you've never heard of and that you've never met versus hearing about and being encouraged by reports of great faith of a dear brother or sister that you know very well, let's say, that's serving overseas as a missionary. It's always encouraging, it's always heartwarming to hear about Christians and what they're doing all over the world and sharing the gospel, but there's this personal connotation to the report that you just can't duplicate or replicate when it's someone that you know. Right? When it's someone that you've worked with, someone that you've gone to battle with, someone that you have ministered with, someone that you've broken bread with, someone that you love personally as a brother or sister in Christ. And so we can picture Paul here saying, yeah, I've heard of your faith, I've heard of your love, and as your former pastor, as the one who instructed you in the things of the faith, as the one who first saw God work amongst you, this is great news. I can't stop giving thanks for you. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. I can't stop thinking of how great our God is, how powerfully he's worked amongst you in Ephesus. For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. It's very personal. But Paul then tells the Ephesians, not only do I give thanks for you unceasingly, I also never stop praying for you. Now if you look in your Bibles, the prayer clearly starts in verse 17 
Where it ends is a little bit less clear. Some commentators even believe that chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, right, those famous first 10 verses of Ephesians 2, are part of the prayer that starts in chapter 1, verse 17. I personally think that the prayer ends at the end of chapter 1 uh, for two reasons. One is because the first 10 verses of Ephesians 2 kind of form their own cohesive thought. And secondly, because in the original language of the Greek, verses 15 to 23, it's one sentence. It's one Greek sentence. And so it forms one cohesive thought. Just like verses 3 to 14 were one sentence, verses 15 to 23 are one sentence. And so if you're keeping track, from 3 to 23, that's 21 verses in our English Bibles, that's two long Greek sentences. But before we get to the content of the prayer, let's remember the context here, the context of this prayer. What came right before? Paul just spent 12 verses in verses 3 to 14 talking about the sovereignty of God in salvation, how God elected us, adopted us, redeemed us, forgave us, sealed us with the Spirit, and so on. And of all these spiritual blessings, remember who the subject of these verbs are. It's God. God is the subject. Right? Salvation is of the Lord, Jonah 2.9. From the beginning to the end, it's all God working in us. And then right after that, in the verses that follow, he talks about this prayer for the Ephesians. And so you say, well, hold on, Paul. You just talked about how God has already accomplished all these things in the believer and how God is the subject, how God is the orchestrator of all these things. So why then are you praying on top of that? Why pray for this people if God is sovereign like you say he is? If he foreordained all these things, why are you praying for them? Well, God is the one who orchestrates and authors the ends of everything. From the beginning of time to the end of time, the sovereign God of the universe has decreed everything. He does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and amongst the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say to him, none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? But God uses our prayers as a means to accomplish that which he has decreed. Here's the key to understanding Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. Knowing that the God who's already accomplished this salvation, remember past tense, accomplished this salvation, would bring it to completion, gave Paul more confidence in asking for it. Right? Knowing that the God who has already accomplished this salvation would bring it to completion, gave Paul more confidence in asking for it. First John 5.14, This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. It's like when we know the outcome to a game or we know the outcome to a movie before we watch it. So then when the hero is in a tough spot, well, we know they're going to get out of it somehow because they make it to the end. I used to have a friend who would take comfort in knowing what happens at the end of the movie so that he could watch the movie knowing that everything was going to turn out okay. So there's a real bad situation. The hero, surely he is going to meet his doom here. Well, he can't meet his doom because he makes it to the end and he lives happily ever after. Knowing that gave him confidence or comfort in watching the movie. Don't stress about it. I think it's a little ridiculous. But in the same way, Paul's knowledge of the sovereignty of God and salvation, which is clear from the first 14 verses, further bolsters his confidence to pray for the Ephesians, knowing that God who began a good work in them would bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Right? Understanding the sovereignty of God should bolster our confidence in praying for each other, praying for other believers rather than hindering it. Now let's look at the prayer itself. Prayer that Paul prays basically has two parts. 
First part of the prayer is that God the Father would give the Ephesians the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Basically, that they might know God the Father better. The NIV translates verse 17 as, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you might know him better. Now, the spirit of wisdom there could either refer, it's unclear from the text, to the Holy Spirit himself or a spirit of wisdom that comes through the Holy Spirit. Either way, whether it is the Spirit himself or a manner or disposition that comes from the Holy Spirit, what is clear is that the Holy Spirit allows the believer to grow in their knowledge of God the Father. Now the second part of the prayer, which is really where I want to focus the bulk of our time on, is that by God the Father giving you, the Ephesian church, this wisdom and revelation that you might know him better, that you would then have the eyes of your heart enlightened so that you might know three things. There's three things in the text here. One, that you might know what is the hope to which God the Father has called you. Two, that you might know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And third, that you might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Let's take a look at these one at a time. First, let's think about the hope to which he has called us. Verse 18 says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Now, when we think about life, we think about human life, objectively, honestly, truthfully, it's pretty hard not to get depressed. What's the point of life? We're born, we go to school, we work, we pay our expenses, we work, maybe we have a family, we work, we get old, we work, and then we die. And then when you die, some people will cry, Some people will say some nice things about you and they'll lower the casket and they'll go back to the church, they'll eat donuts. And the entirety of your life is summed up in that. Everything that you've done, all the stuff that you worked for in your life ends with a small little celebration at your funeral and everybody goes home and carries on. Life is pretty pointless. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. There's a popular saying that went around back in Paul's day called the wisdom of Silenus. And it said, quote, It is best not to be born at all, and next to that, it is better to die than to live. Basically, that life was pointless and meaningless and hopeless and full of suffering, and so it was best to not be born at all. You might remember Job saying similar things. And if you do get born, well, the next best thing is to just die. Writer of Ecclesiastes probably summed it up best. Right at the beginning of the book, in what is the thesis statement of the book, Chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And now philosophers and thinkers and intellects have pondered for centuries the central question to our existence, which is what is the meaning of life? What's the conclusion? Well, what's the writer of Ecclesiastes say? What does the worldly wisdom of Silenus say? What do our life experiences say? All is vanity. Life is meaningless. We toil and toil and suffer, and at the end of the day, we gain absolutely nothing. But as if that were not bad enough, now add to all this depressing talk that not only is life hopeless, not only is life pointless, not only is life meaningless, but we're also held accountable for our life. God is holy, 
God is perfect, and so he demands holiness and perfection from us. He will accept nothing less. But you and I know that we are not capable of that. We break his laws and commandments. We sin against him. We worship ourselves. We exalt ourselves. We serve ourselves instead of worshiping and exalting and serving him. We refuse to submit to his authority and say, we will not have this man to rule over us. And so the just and fair punishment for that rebellion, for that sin, is an eternity in hell, where the wrath of God against lawbreakers is poured out on us. So Silenus was actually completely wrong in one regard, when he said it's better to die than to live. For an unbeliever, the worst thing is to die. Because if you think this life is miserable, if you think this life is full of suffering, just wait till you get to hell. Hell is the ultimate misery Hell is the ultimate suffering. And so I want you to know, Paul wants us to know that life is hopeless, life is pointless, life is depressing, and that when the misery of your life ends, well, you have an eternity in hell, an eternity of misery and suffering to look forward to. Now, only once we grasp this, the hopeless nature of our lives, do we start to understand what Paul is saying when he writes in the next chapter, chapter 2, verse 12, Remember that, at, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Having no hope and without God in the world. Having no hope at all, either in this life or the eternity to come. But the key phrase there, the concept in which we have to couch all of this hopelessness that we've been talking about, is the beginning of that verse. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. That is, Paul's statement about having no hope, pretty much the entire bleak picture that I painted of our lives on earth and the life to come, is for people separated from Christ. People separated from Christ have no hope. And so if you're sitting here today, and you are separated from Christ, that is, you are not a Christian, well, I pray that you see how Paul so succinctly describes your life and your existence right having no hope and without god in this world no hope of escaping an eternity in hell where you will be punished for the sins that you have committed against a holy god in this life but the gospel is here for you today the gospel is your hope the gospel is our hope right? the gospel says that jesus christ died for your sins in your place and that in exchange you get his perfection the gospel says that today you can be saved by believing that Jesus died for you and that he rose again. Because for those of us who have Christ, right, those of us in this room who are saved, our lives look very different, amen? We are saved by the grace of God and when we are saved, God gives us in Christ every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so we live our lives knowing that although this life is but a vapor, we live for the glory of God in everything. We live in the joy that our sins are paid for. We live in the joy that a holy God hears us through the intercessory work of Jesus Christ. We live in the joy that we can know a holy God through Jesus Christ, the Son. And when we die, people will still eat donuts at our funeral. We will be forgotten, but we will be rejoicing because to live is Christ, but to die is gain. For the Christian to live is Christ, but to die is gain. We don't have to pay an eternity in hell because our sins are paid for on the cross by the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. And when we die, 
We are united with our God. We see him face to face in his glory. We are in the presence of his glory. Romans 5, 2, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's what we rejoice in. That's what we hope in. We rejoice in hope, not hopelessness. We have hope of the glory of God, and so we rejoice. And so that's what Paul is talking about here. I pray for you, Ephesians, that God would enlighten the eyes of your hearts, that you may know the hope to which he has called you, that God would enlighten your hearts, that you might know that even though life is completely without hope for those apart from Christ, for you who are in Christ, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. He's praying that not only would you know that this life is not hopeless in Christ, but that also they would see how much hope there is both in this life and in the life to come. In this life, as we live and we work not for ourselves, we don't toil in vain, we live for Christ. And then in the life to come, we're going to be in the presence of our maker. We're going to see him face to face. He is going to be our God and we are going to be his people. Know the hope to which he has called you through the spirit of wisdom and revelation, through knowing him better, through knowing the gospel better, we have hope through the gospel. Second thing that Paul is praying that the Ephesians understand is the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now this can be interpreted in one of two ways. Either we the saints are God's inheritance, as in we are his possession, or we the saints are receiving an inheritance through God, through salvation. Now given the first 14 verses and how Paul talks about the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, and one of them is our inheritance, the second explanation is probably more likely. Another reason I believe it's more likely that he's talking about our inheritance through God and not God's inheritance of us is because the text describes the inheritance as being rich and glorious. That would make more sense in the context of that which we receive from God being rich and glorious rather than we as God's inheritance ourselves being rich and glorious. So I believe the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints means the riches of the glorious inheritance that God gives the saints or among the saints. Now you might wonder at this point, well, what's the difference between these first two points? What's the difference between the first thing that Paul listed, knowing the hope to which he has called you, and the second thing, which is the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Well, the answer is, in the first point, the hope to which he has called you, Paul, Paul wants us, through a knowledge of God, to have more assurance in our call, in our salvation, in our hope. That our hope would not be an empty hope, but a sure hope, because it's founded on the promises of God. For the second point, the riches of the glorious inheritance, he wants us to focus on the riches part. The word for riches there signifies an abundance, an exceeding quantity. Like, not only do I want you to know and be secure in your knowledge that you are saved unto eternal life, but I want you to know how rich, how awesome that eternal life is. To use an analogy, it's like saying you won the lottery, right? That's the first point that Paul's making. And the second point is that you are a billionaire, right? You have been saved unto these riches. Because Paul's not just saying, well, You've been saved and you're going to heaven. Now he's saying you have been saved and you are going to heaven. The riches of his glorious inheritance. Do we get that? Psalm 1611. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
And I wonder if we, I wonder if I really believe that and I really get that. Does that excite you? Does that excite us? The riches of his glorious inheritance. And we need to ask this in our hearts. Does this excite us? Do the riches of his glorious inheritance, do they excite us as they should? This needs to excite us. And if it doesn't, we need to pray that God would enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we might know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Sometimes we talk about our salvation and we talk about Jesus. We talk about the gospel as if it were just something else that happened to us. Yeah, uh, seven years ago, I got saved and became a Christian and yeah, going to heaven. It's like, Really? Really, we are, we are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. We don't have to pay for our sins because Jesus died in our place. And because of that, we're going to be in his presence. We're going to experience the fullness of joy. This has to excite us, the riches of his glorious inheritance. Amen? This has to excite us. Finally, third point, Paul wants the Ephesians to know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. The immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. One commentator puts it this way. As God raised Christ from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places, so you that were dead in sins, he has quickened and raised you up together in him. There was as great a difference between your present and your former condition as between Christ in the tomb and Christ at the right hand of God. God demonstrated his power in a great way in each and every one of us who is saved by transferring us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That is, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believed is first and foremost displayed in the fact that he saved us. But I think that there is another sense in which God displays the greatness of his power toward us because it's not like we're saved and then all of a sudden we're teleported into eternity to live in heaven forever. We deal with the problems of this world. We are supposed to live out our lives in this dark, depraved world. Remember, Ephesus was a center of paganism and wickedness. It was a dark and depraved place. Similarly, New York City is a center of paganism and wickedness. It's a dark and depraved place. And so, Paul, you mentioned our calling, right? That's in the past. You mentioned our inheritance, that's in the future, but... What, Paul, are we, the church, what are we supposed to do here and now, in between the past and the future, in the present? While we're up against all kinds of spiritual warfare and false teachings and pagan influences and and ungodly surroundings, well, Paul says he wants his readers, through their knowledge of God, to know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe in living out our daily lives. That is the power of the gospel, the power of God that enables us to live holy lives in this fallen world. Here's how Peter puts it in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 8. His divine power has granted to us, right? That's the same word there for power. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness here on earth, life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. 
For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's divine power grants us everything, this verse says, pertaining to life and godliness. That is, how do we live our lives out here in the present, in this age, in this life? So God's power, the same power that Paul is talking about in Ephesians 1, that same power that Paul wants the Ephesians to realize they have from God in Christ is what enables us to live godly lives. It's what enables us to, as Peter says, escape from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. It's what allows us to combat that, to live godly lives amidst a sin-stained world. James Montgomery Boyce writes, it's not only at the end of things, that is at our own resurrection, that the power of God displayed in Christ is to be seen in us. It is to be seen in our present victories over sin in this life. That's the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Now, knowing that some who read this would say, well, you know, God's power, that's great and everything. But honestly, I don't see it working in me. I just, I just feel discouraged and defeated by my sin. It, it's not enough. I'm not seeing victory. Now, to those who might doubt God's power or think it be irrelevant or think it be useless... Paul points out that this is the same power that was on display when God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. It's the same power that was on display when God put all things under his feet. It's the same power that was on display when God gave Christ his head over the church. Namely, the power that made Christ victorious over sin and death and the devil, that's the power that's at work within us. Paul's arguing here from the greater to the lesser. Right? If God's power can do these great things, how much more can we be confident that it will carry us through? It will allow us to persevere in this life. Our victory in this life can only come by looking first at Jesus Christ's victory. So how does God declare victory? Well, first through the resurrection and the ascension. The resurrection is the authentication of Christ's ministry. Right? It's the acceptance of Jesus' death. The proof that Jesus defeated sin and death and the grave, Colossians 2 said that Christ triumphed over them. Now, having raised Jesus from the dead, God declares victory again, this time through the ascension of Christ, through the seating of him at his right hand, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, it says. Christ was seated at the right hand of God. You see, the priests of Israel, you read the Old Testament, the priests of Israel never sat down. There were no seats in the tabernacle. There were no seats in the temple because they were always working. They were always making sacrifices. They were always atoning for sins. The work was never finished, but Jesus said, it is finished. And he sits because his work is done. His once for all sacrifice has been made and accepted. And so he sits at the right hand, the position of prominence, rule and authority and power and dominion. That's referring to angelic beings. Well, guess what? Jesus is above them all. He has the name above every name. All things are put under his feet and he is head over all things in the church. He is victorious. 
So now if God's power through Jesus triumphed and proclaimed victory over death, which is our greatest enemy, the greatest fear, the number one obstacle, then what else would we as Christians have to be afraid of? It's like when David defeats Goliath. You'll remember the story from the Old Testament. When David defeats Goliath, the same Israelite army that was scared to take on the Philistines, now all of a sudden they get this tremendous courage and they, go all, they all go out and pursue the Philistines. Why? Because God through David had defeated the greatest, strongest enemy that the Philistines had put forth, namely Goliath. Once that greatest of enemies was defeated, the most imposing of enemies was defeated, then the Israelites knew that God was on their side and they had nothing to be afraid of. And it's the same thing in our lives. Knowing that the greatest enemy, death, sin, the devil, has been stripped of its power, how much more can we trust in God's power to, by his spirit, help us live out holy lives? But the Israelites were emboldened to fight in light of David's victory. We need to be emboldened to fight for holiness in light of Christ's victory. The day-to-day Christian life is hard. It's filled with struggles. It's it's wrought with sin, both ours and, and those of other people. And so sometimes we feel discouraged. We feel overwhelmed. We feel like well, we just can't do it. And that's when we need to remind ourselves. That's when we need to be reminded that this battle, this struggle, the bigger picture, it's really already over. Right? Its outcome is predetermined. Because God the Father has already in his power seated Jesus at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is to be named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. This battle is won on our behalf because God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him his head over the church. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. And he is seated. It is finished. Now remember how I said earlier how knowing that God has completed and finished our salvation makes us bolder in asking for things in prayer on behalf of the saints? It's the same thing here. Knowing that God has completed and finished Christ's victory and crowning as king, it makes us bolder in living holy lives by his grace. Knowing the outcome, knowing the end of the movie, that the victory is ours through Jesus Christ, That's what allows us to then live out our lives for the glory of God while we're here on this sin-stained earth. By understanding the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. To close, I have two application points, challenges, whatever you'd like to call them, based on this text that I would like us all to go home with today to think about and then by God's grace through His Spirit, apply in our lives. They are to be thankful and to be imitators. To be thankful and to be imitators. First challenge, let us be thankful. What Paul is praying for, basically this heart-enlightening knowledge of God, is something that only believers are able to grasp. Only once God enlightens the formerly spiritually dead mind... Can we even begin to understand and appreciate the hope and the inheritance that is ours in Christ? Are you ever share with a, a non-believer and you know, you're talking to them from the excitement of your heart about salvation and the glory of God and you see the unbeliever is listening and nodding and paying attention, but they just, they just don't get it. 
And you think to yourself, well, this makes so much sense to me. Why can't you see that God is glorious? Why can't you see how awesome Jesus Christ and the gospel is? That, that we've been saved from an eternity in hell because of the work of Jesus Christ. Why can't you see how great this is? Of course, the reason is because God has not opened up their eyes. An unbeliever cannot grasp the glory of God. An unbeliever cannot grasp the hope to which we are called. An unbeliever cannot grasp the riches of our inheritance. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that the natural person does not accept the things of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The unsaved person doesn't get it. The unsaved person thinks it's all folly. But the difference between them and us is not that we are smarter. It's not that we're more discerning. It's not that we're better educated. It's that God has bestowed his unmerited favor and grace upon us, but not on them. That is the only way that we have the eyes of our hearts enlightened is by God giving us the spirit of wisdom of revelation and the knowledge of him, as Paul says in Ephesians 1. It's given to us. It's not something that we figure out on our own. Consider the two men on the road to Emmaus, Luke chapter 24. Jesus explains to them, starting with the law and the prophets, everything concerning himself in the scriptures. And he's exegeting for them text after text. And, and wouldn't, you just, wouldn't you love to just hear what he had to say about himself from the law and the prophets? He's explained to them prophecy after prophecy, Right? He's giving them all the information they can handle. And the two men invite Jesus into their homes and he breaks bread at their table. And then in verse 31 of Luke 24, it says, And their eyes, that is the eyes of the men, were opened. And then they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures? It's not until their eyes were opened by God that they realized who was talking to them that whole time. Right? It's not until their eyes were opened that they realized that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was the Christ. In the same way, it's not until we have our eyes opened by God that we understand any spiritual blessing. And so understanding that has to make us a thankful people. The people of God must be a thankful people. We certainly don't save ourselves. And even once we're saved... We don't give ourselves wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God that we might grasp these blessings better. Right? It all comes from God. The hymn writer Isaac Watts asked, Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Well, the answer is God's grace. The answer is God's grace. We need to understand that this knowledge of God, of his inheritance for us, of salvation... But by the grace of God, there go we with the gospel complete folly to us, heading towards our own destruction. Let us be thankful people. A proper understanding of the gospel has to make us thankful people. Second challenge is let us be imitators. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So let us imitate the example of the Apostle Paul. Here's what I mean. Oftentimes when we make prayer requests, we ask, we think, of practical matters. Right? Pray for me that my leg would heal. Pray for me that I would get a job. Pray for me that I would be able to make my car payments. Our prayers, both in requests to others to pray for us and in our own supplications we make to behalf, on behalf of others and on behalf of ourselves, they tend to be 
practically centered. My, my prayers tend to be practically centered. I want to be careful in how I say this because there's absolutely nothing wrong with praying for practical things. Our health, our finances, our homes, our jobs, our cars, absolutely God wants us. God desires us to pray for all these things. He wants us to be completely dependent upon him for all things. He wants to rule over every aspect of our lives and we display that by bringing every aspect of our lives to him in prayer. For example, 2 Corinthians 12:8, Paul says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me referring to the thorn in his flesh. Now, whatever you believe about the thorn in the flesh, whether it be poor eyesight or another physical affliction or a troublemaker in his ministry, what is clear is that that is a practical prayer that he is fervently praying for. James chapter 5, Is anyone amongst you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone amongst you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. James commands us to pray for these practical matters, such as sickness and suffering. So obviously, obviously God wants us to pray for these practical matters. He wants us to bring every burden to him. He wants us to rely on him for everything, all physical healing, all physical provisions. I'm not denying that or doubting that in any way. But what is Paul praying for here? Paul is praying for the Ephesians that God the Father might give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that through their knowledge of him, they would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. His prayer is completely centered on the spiritual understanding of the Ephesians. And I'm not saying these spiritual prayers should replace our physical prayers. I'm not even saying that there's a clear distinction between them. Most of the time, there is not. But here's a question that we can ask ourselves. Do I pray for this for myself? Do I pray like this for my spouse, for my children, for my brothers and sisters in Christ, for the members of my D group, for my pastors? Do I pray like this? Do I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that they might know the hope to which he has called them, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Do we pray like that? Is it possible, brothers and sisters, is it possible that we're being far too narrow in our scope? We're being too stingy in what we're asking for. We're praying for our colds to go away. We're praying that God would give us a better job. Don't you realize how much more we could be asking for? We could be asking that the God of the universe would reveal to us the hope to which he has called us. We could be asking him to reveal to us the riches, the abundant, exceeding riches of the inheritance in the saints. We could be asking for him to reveal to us the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe as we attempt to live out holy lives for his glory. But all we ask for is health in our, in our new jobs. We're cheating ourselves. We're cheating the people we're praying for by not asking for these grand things. Yes, pray for these, you know, dare I say, smaller things, but let's not forget to ask for these great, grand things. Because here's the thing. Paul was in Ephesus for three years. He would have known the physical needs of the body. He would have known who needed work, who had sick family members, who was sick themselves, who didn't have any money, whose house was falling apart. And surely he prayed for these things. But how much greater of a thing does he ask for here that they would grasp the fullness of God's blessings toward them? 
We spend so much time praying for these small things. We're missing out on these big promises that scripture says pray for these things. Paul prays for these things. That we would grasp the fullness of God's blessings for us. Because Paul knows, and we know, that our happiness, our contentment, our joy as Christians comes not from our health, comes not from our finances, comes not from our jobs, comes not from our houses, comes not from our families. Primarily, our joy as Christians comes from knowing Christ, from knowing what he's done for us, from knowing what he's promised us, from knowing him better. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We do not rejoice in our jobs, our homes, and our health. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Because God could answer every single practical, physical prayer that we have. But to the extent that God doesn't enlighten our hearts that we might know the hope to which he has called us, the riches of his glorious inheritance, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, then we're going to be lacking in that joy and in that blessing. We as Christians rejoice not in our physical and practical circumstances. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Amen? Amen. So let us, brothers and sisters, let's pray like Paul prayed. Let's ask for what Paul asked for. Let's not rob ourselves and those that we pray for by limiting our prayers to these small blessings when we can be asking him for nothing greater than to know him, to know him better, to know his gospel better. To know Jesus Christ better. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the fact that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, that we might not be resigned to hopelessness both in this life and the life to come, but that we might one day see you face to face and live in your glory and enjoy your presence forevermore. And Lord, we pray that we would be heavenly-minded people. We pray that we would constantly be meditating on how great and grand our inheritance is going to be in Christ. And Lord, I pray that our prayer lives would reflect that, that we would ask for these things, just as Paul asked for these things for the Ephesians. Lord, that we would have a mindset that is centered upon the hope to which you've called us, upon the blessings that you are giving us, and the power, the immeasurable power toward us who believe. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.